live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome to the show. Good evening. This is Yona Budd. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. Actually, it's more of a voyage, a venture, maybe kind of a bit of a journey, if you will. I know that everyone uses that thing. I'm on this journey, man. Well, this is a wellness opportunity because we get to help each other and share and hopefully make a bit of a difference. We've got some great stuff lined up. We'll get to that soon. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate you. Just so you know, I'm not sure you hear that from everybody, but I do. I appreciate you. Our staff does, but Heather and all the folks involved, Natasha and Sophia, we appreciate the fact that you listen and we appreciate you coming back and the comments we hear through the week and all that stuff. So just want you to know, man, you know, we'll give you a big hug virtually and we love you in some proper kind of way, not in that creepy kind of way. Right. Anyway, let's get to it. Um, There's just no good segue to talk about people dying. Um, I know we keep doing it right around guns, around drugs, around, you know, substance about the domestic abuse. Like we're just hearing about it. And um, frankly, I got to tell you, as a crisis guy and a therapist and so on, on top of what we're doing here as a broadcaster, it just gets a little uncomfortable because I keep looking for answers, right? I keep trying to find some answers. Um, and kind of what drives me to do the show, you know, it just gives me an opportunity to kind of dive into some stuff and have you all listen and participate and call in when it's appropriate. Anyway. This concept, this conversation about this concept of people dying because they're either homeless or have mental health or substance abuse disorder or both, um, it just gets old, right? And as we're building these beautiful condos and things are expanding and new schools, and new shopping malls and you know, prices of things are going up, yet there's still tons of brand new everything on the road, right? We're forgetting about the people that we're leaving behind, I think. So those in the know say that the tainted drug supply is actually one of the major causes of spike in deaths of people experiencing homelessness across multiple cities in this country. I'd say every major city. And, you know, as you're going to hear coming up, not just small, not just big cities, small cities, too. But it's not the only reason. Experts point to the reduced capacity at shelters, right? More difficult to to access services. Uh, There's all of that whole pandemic effect that's going to be you know, lingering for who knows how long sickness, long-term complications with quote unquote, long-term COVID, right? People trauma from losing people, people dying on the streets, you know, people living on the streets have friends and loved ones too, right? Some that live with them in their same rough environment, as as we would say, versus families that live in our communities around whoever, you know, your neighbor may have a cousin, a brother, somebody, God forbid, that's living like that. Well, in Edmonton, they saw a 70% increase in homeless deaths. That's 220 people, 222 people were identified as having died due to homelessness in 2021, compared to 131 in 2020. Toronto saw 50% increase. Listen to me, 50% increase in 2021 over the previous year. 216 people died without a home more than half of those deaths occurring within the shelter system. So if the answer that everyone's looking for is get them out of a cardboard box and get them into a bed, clearly that's not necessarily the answer and certainly not the answer alone. Vancouver Police Department says it saw a 40% increase in sudden deaths for people with no fixed address responding to 65 such incidents in 2021. 
Like this is a, this is a, as we've talked about before the, the the after effects, the aftermath of COVID is it's in itself a pandemic epidemic. People say it's a drug and alcohol problem. That's bull, according to Mayor. He's living on the street. He's an older guy. He's in and out of shelters. Drugs and alcohol are the aftermath. What we're really dealing here with is spiritual, mental, emotional pain that people are hiding from. And he's absolutely right. So many of the people that are homeless come from situations where they've been abused, either on the street, before going to the street. There's a reason people leave their homes. Very few people that I know that I've actually met are born into homelessness necessarily. Again, could be my limited limited, uh, information, right, in terms of what I have available. But throughout the pandemic, we've seen trauma. We've seen clients carried their lives were compounded, losing friends and loved ones, as we said. And then the death from opioids is, is just overwhelming. So it's created a grief cycle, according to experts. And the, where, we, where people would turn to drugs to deal with the loss, right? So you go, you get high to deal with your loss until you learn how to do otherwise through therapy and so on. Well, they're now succumbing to death as a result of going to their fix, if you will. They're high. It helps them get out of wherever they are. There were also folks who got sick from COVID and died, as well as people who experienced long-term complications, as we talked about. Some found it much harder to get the help that they used to get. Lineups, reduced capacity for different kinds of facilities. So these drop-in centers, for example, are offering takeaway meals, supplies, making it harder for people to connect in housing and, 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 uh, and healthcare workers. And then we went to the shelter system, changed the shelter system not so far back to a hotel-based system, right? People were going to shelters, different shelters, and then we moved them into hotels, into individual rooms, where by itself, the isolation and lack of someone being in the room next to them to see if, in fact, they were overdosing and could perhaps provide a naloxone, which is the reverse um, drug used to reverse the complications and the potential death and overdose of an opioid. So we're trying to do all the right things in terms of moving people from here to there, putting them into beds and so on. But that's not the answer. What we're looking for as an answer is something social. It's a social difference, right? That's the difference that we're talking about here is a social difference where we have to look at where people come from and why they're homeless. I mean, you've heard it over and over again. Toronto Public Health said it's taking a multi-pronged approach to addressing the increase in homeless deaths, including developing a Toronto drug strategy consisting of four integrated parts, prevention, harm, reduction, treatment, enforcement. It sounds great. Also working more closely with shelters to ensure that they have harm reduction supplies, such as naloxone available and trained staff in overdose prevention. Like we're talking about this now? We should have been talking about this a long time ago. Everyone, every shelter in this city should have a, a healthy supply of naloxone. And at least four people at any given time need to know how, know how to provide it, right? How to give it. Right nowadays, you squeeze, spray it into somebody's nose. It's kind of easy peasy, not so difficult to do, right? You could save a life. The whole system is flawed. And they'll pay, you know, in jails, they'll pay 200 bucks a day to keep someone in a jail, according to Mayor. Meyer, the guy we talked about who's been on the street, but 50 bucks a day so someone can live, no one can seem to find that in government. It's a problem. And there's very people out there coming up with solutions to fix the problem. You know, when we come back from break here, my guest is uh, a gentleman. His name is Don Trepanier. He's the program director of the Annex. He and his wife are doing amazing things in St. Thomas, Ontario. 
trying to save lives, trying to make a difference, trying to keep people off the street, give them benefits, give them opportunities, give them you know access to counseling and food and, and all kinds of other social services and so on, right? And when we come back, we're going to talk about more stuff, stuff that you know I think you we all need to really talk about. You know, mental health people say that, you know, we need a, a three-digit suicide hotline. That's what we're going to talk about that next after we talk to Don Trepanier in, in segment two. Then we're going to listen and, and, and talk to an expert on something called brain painting, how you help people with um, attention deficit hypertension disorder, ADHD. So lots to talk about. We, you know, we want to, we just want to educate and, and provide information where we can. And at the same time, maybe, you know, teach you something or you teach us something along the way uh, to help us on this road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud. This is 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. If you're not sure what you dialed into, you are on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud and I'm your host this evening here at 640. Uh, thanks for joining in. We appreciate your interest in the stuff we talk about. Uh, this is a conversation that I, I'm really hoping you're going to pay attention to in terms of what we're talking about. I don't mean in a, you bet pay attention, but I mean, in terms of letting settle it, letting it set in a little bit and actually understand what we're talking about and who the people are that we're talking about. And it's, you know, it's not what you see in the movies and certainly uh, it's not how it's depicted uh, often. Uh, by media. Um, so the, the article that we're talking about says amid gaps in addiction uh, help, a soup kitchen expands its services. It really kind of caught me on my, uh, in a good point here, because I, I, I've always thought about, you know, how can we do more? How can people do more when they've actually got the interaction already kind of in place? So people showing up, for example, to a soup kitchen, um, you know, there's great opportunity to reach out and do something good uh, beyond, you know, the feeding and the, and, the, and the camaraderie and the social, which is amazing, but we can do better. We can do more. Um, there's, a pro, there's a program newly expanded in a St. Thomas facility that aims to help those that struggle with addiction. Uh, it's a soup kitchen helping homeless people in St. Thomas. It's branching out a new center. Um, it's helped to, in the, looking to help with people who have substance use disorder related to drugs, alcohol, fighting for sobriety, trying to get themselves clean, so to speak. The new center is called the Annex, great name, uh, and it'll function under the banner, the uh, non-for-profit banner of Grace Cafe. It's a soup kitchen that provides meals to homeless people in the city, roughly about 42,000 of them. And the program director of the Annex, his name is Don Trepignier. Uh, his wife, actually, Ginny, she manages the Grace Cafe. So uh, two of them are in this arm in arm. Uh, and let me just give a quote here. For us, this is very much the next step that we see as an important way to help our clients that are frequenting the cafe. He says, my wife and I are just sick and tired of people being caught in addiction and not having opportunities to consider rehab. So we wanted to have a place where we could talk about it and they could talk to us talk to someone who's compassionate and is trained. My guest this evening, fortunately, is Mr. Don Trepanier. Welcome, sir. Bonjour. Thank, Thank you, you so very, much. Thank That's you very it. much, Yona. It was a great, uh, great opportunity, great pleasure to talk about this. Thank you. And I hope I did the name justice, but that's about as much French as I know. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, the annex and how it came about and, you know, just give us a story. Uh, well, um, you, you're, you're quite correct. Uh, well, the Brace Cafe started as, as a, a passion of ours uh, about eight years ago. Uh, we've been 
in the little town of St. Thomas now for, for eight years, uh, delivering not just food, but we're delivering warmth and compassion and clothing and toiletries to those in need. And uh, with a little town of St. Thomas comes there. You know, it's, a, it's amazing the number of people who are caught in, in homelessness or who are caught in, in addiction or in poverty. And it was a real pleasure for us to, to provide a place of safety and, and of warmth and a, you know, a, a refuge. Um, last fall, we were, you know, my wife and I were having breakfast one morning and we were kind of, you know, commiserating over the fact that, yeah, we're, we're doing all this good work and, and there's all these people who are coming in each and every day and we're delivering, you know, 100, 120 meals each day in this little town, but, but we're not seeing people get out of addiction. And of course, I've been, I'm chief program officer for Teen Challenge. I've been involved in 24 years in addiction and rehab. And I was, you know, we came up with the idea of having a, a kind of a street front or storefront facility to have people, you know, come into another place where they could start talking about their addiction and, and have an opportunity to engage in what the community already is doing. Uh, some of the agencies in St. Thomas, whether it's uh, dealing with mental health, dealing with uh, medical, legal, uh, but there's a host of other agencies that, that are in St. Thomas, but we thought we need to help these people connect with agencies. Ac yeah, give them access. Give uh, you, them access. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, first of all, brilliant plan and uh, lots of success, I hope, for you going forward. Uh, Don, you mentioned that you're, you have an involvement with Teen Challenge. You did have an involvement with Teen Challenge. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that has been my career for, for, uh, for a number of years. Um, this is not connected to Teen Challenge. I, I understand, but you're, you're, you're a counselor from Teen Challenge? Or you I, I, or I am a, I'm a trained counselor, although I, I don't exercise that training um, in my current role. I'm, as the chief program officer, I oversee the uh, 250 beds that we have here. Uh, and and so you know, but we wanted to be able to just have an opportunity for people to um, just talk. Uh, we wanted to be um, to have some compassionate staff uh, in St. Thomas who would just be open to receiving people who are either uh, struggling in their you know, in their daily activities in addiction to be able to come in and say, "Listen, I just I need to 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 get off my drugs, and I need to have an opportunity. What can, what what is there out there?" Okay, so so let me ask you something. Let me understand this. So they show up to Ginny's place. They show up to the Grace Cafe. And then from there, they get connected to the annex or it's in the same building or it's right next door or physically, how does this work? And like uh, geographically? Yes, uh, it is right next door. We, we thought right. it would be best to yeah, be right brilliant. next door. Yeah, yes. Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, and maybe take your plate of food and go talk to a counselor if you're in the mood, right? Uh, <laughs> That's right. I can't tell you how many virtual sessions I do with people who are eating during our sessions. But, you right. know, they get well, so that's all that counts. Um, so, Dawn, you're talking about the staffing uh, of this thing, uh, of this facility, I don't mean thing, of the annex. Uh, who's receiving them? Okay, so we understand that you've got, you know, some tremendous background and training. And for those that don't know the Teen Challenge program, it's, it's brilliant and excellent and just helps so many people. People that we just don't, you know, we don't talk about it because it's not very public, but they do a great job. So kudos to you for that too. Uh, but but uh, slow down the conversation here a little bit. Who's receiving me if I decide to go and talk to somebody at the annex? Well, uh, we we opened our doors four weeks ago, and um, but before we we did that, we hired uh, some staff uh, to to be there. Uh, so so we have an office manager. 
Uh, her name is Mindy. She's uh, great on, on phones and, and great to receive and, and helps people get comfortable. Yep. Uh, we also have a community support worker who has had, uh, who's living in recovery, uh, 12 years clean, who's a great gal who's, who, who understands addiction and knows the, the difficulties of, of getting out of addiction. And yep. she's like totally on fire for, for this, for this opportunity. Yep. And we also have um, a, uh, an addictions counselor who an accredited counselor who's, who's going to be engaging in providing addictions counseling sessions to those who, who um, want some. Well, I'll tell you, man, you seem to have all of the, uh, all of the corners and all the angles looked at. This is not, this is an outpatient drop-in style versus residential, correct? That, that's correct. Yes. Uh, we, uh, we're just open in the mornings at the, at the, at the current moment until, you know, until we get uh, overwhelmed and then we're going to start uh, expanding our hours. But uh, this, this uh, project that we are, this outreach, a community outreach is fully funded. We have had enough success out of the Grace Cafe's um, outreach of, of, of the food, uh, the soup kitchen, that we were able to, to look at a, a, a budget for this one-year project. And we, we determined that, that we were going to be able to uh, fully support that financially. So we're, we're running this as a, as a one-year pilot. Yep. And uh, we already are saying to ourselves, yes, we, this is going to be a permanent structure in St. Thomas. It's so well needed. It's been so well received. Um, and we want to continue to to provide this uh, in 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 our community. So okay, I I, I that's I, I get it. That's um, trying to figure out where I'm going here. So uh, you're funding this. I, I, you're funding this, as I understand, out of the out of the profits out of the cafe or the funding that the cafe gets from elsewhere. Yes, the the cafe is a registered charity. Um, right. So we we are a nonprofit and registered charity, yep. and uh, it's purely volunteer driven. Um, there, no one no one is getting paid, uh, and we've been able to receive and be very very prudent uh, with our donations. And uh, we recognized that we wanted this to be a a community grassroots uh, project. So we, we, we depend on volunteers. We want volunteers to be involved. And so it's been a community project all, you know, these last eight years. And out of that prudence, you know, financial prudence, we've been able to keep, you know, to, to save our shackles and, and be very prudent with that. And all of a sudden we, we decided, well, we need to do something further with the, uh, the funds that, that the community has provided us. And so we, we've launched the annex based on that. And, uh, you know, it's cost us a little bit more money. We had to renovate yep. the space and, yep. and yep. such, but, but we, we were very prudent in, 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 in the hiring of staff. Uh, my, my role as the annex director is also a voluntary position. I'm not getting paid a penny and I, I'm just yep. doing this uh, out of, out of my, a real deep desire to, to reach out to those in need. We only got a couple of minutes left, but I want to ask you a couple of things. First of all, um, tell me about the community response so far. How are the people? I've been to St. Thomas, by the way. If no one's been there, you got to go. It's beautiful. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely town. But um, how do the people feel? Uh, the, the community is, well, we, we, I think we all know, everybody that I meet, everybody that I talk to knows someone in, in addiction or someone who is going down that path, whether it's a, a family member, a neighbor, a colleague at work, but addiction touches everybody. 
And the, the, the question that I, that I yeah. hear over and over again is, what can we do? What is there that can be done? Um, and, and I keep saying to people, well, you know, once you start going down that road of addiction, there's only two ways to get out of it. One is to, to do treatment, to do rehab, to do, yep. uh, to, to do, you know, to do recovery, do the work. Yep. Do, you got to do the hard work. The other yep. one is, is one that we don't like to hear, but that is death. And we are, that's why we are so sick and tired of hearing of people who are overdosing, who are, are succumbing, our, 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 our sons and daughters, our, our yep. wives and our yep. husbands are dying yep. because of this, of this uh, disease. So, so the support that we're getting is coming out of a desire to want to see, to, to see the hope, help. Yep. hope and freedom. And I know in, in the 24 years that I've been in, in rehab, I know hope and freedom is available for those who are caught in addiction. Okay, real, uh, real quick, buddy. If uh, people want to uh, donate, want to help, I mean, I certainly do. If you want to contact me after the show, anytime during the week, we can figure out a way for me to help. Uh, but uh, I have access to lots of people and lots of things. Uh, but if you can uh, give us a quick, uh, how do we send money? How do we help? What do we do? Uh, we uh, well, you can go to our website. We have a link there. The website is the the Grace Cafe of Saint Thomas. The uh, we have a link to uh, Canada Helps, uh, which yep. can provide yep. an instant tax receipt, yep. and that's the easiest way uh, in which we can receive donations. I'm talking to Don Trepanier, and uh, him, him and his wife Ginny are just uh, well making a, a big difference in a little town. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We'll hear back from you down the road to see how this thing is going. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, your host at 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thanks again for joining us. You are on the Road to Recovery. And again, my name is Yona Bud. Thanks for joining us. I will be your host this evening on, on 640. Mental health experts say that Canada needs a three-digit suicide crisis hotline. I got to tell you, we've been talking about this. People have been talking about this that I know that are you know, involved in this kind of stuff, trying to understand uh, how to come up with a, a hotline number. Um, you know, the people at Kids Help Phone, uh, you know, they were able to, to launch a number that's, you know, much easier to access. Uh, the whole 911, you know, number, the, the, the 311 numbers, you know, it, it seems like it's a fairly easy thing to do, but it's a big deal. Uh, my friends in telecom tell me it is a big deal to organize this and have it in in, be intercepted first in different places. Anyway, it's a, you know, for those that understand it, maybe it maybe uh, makes more sense, but it, it, it's not an easy fix. You don't just assign a number like you do when you move into a new home or start a business or something like that, right? Uh, but the pressure is mounting now for Canada to establish this kind of three digit suicide crisis line, mental health crisis uh, hotline. Um, and there's one being implemented right now in the US starting uh, this weekend, I believe. Uh, it's it's a 988 number, fairly easy to remember. I don't know why it couldn't be 888 or 999, but whatever, 9888. And, and by the way, the designation of that number, the, the sequence of the numbers, the numbers themselves are all part of the process. The 988-988 Mental Health Hotline American Authorities launched on Saturday will once fully uh, operational offers residents struggling with suicidal thoughts, an easy-to-remember number connect them with trained mental health counselors rather than police. So this is still along, we're along the line, not still, but we're along the lines of, 
of moving towards um, not having a police response to a mental health call. And I think we've all agreed that this is the way to go, including police. It's just makes more sense for everybody involved that experts take the call because it requires a certain kind of, I don't know, a certain kind of warmth. Uh, if you ever hear people in a, in, a, in a call center like Kids Help Phone or, you, you know, now they're all working from home for the most part, I think. Uh, but, you know, the warmth that you hear on these calls is really quite amazing. Um, you know, at the farm in Stouffville, where we have a residential facility for people with mental health and addiction disease, you know, we have an answering service that specializes in taking crisis calls. Matter of fact, their, their main business is taking calls from people in an elevator uh, who are stuck, right? So pretty, you know, for the most part, people stuck in an elevator freak out. I certainly do. Um, and it takes someone to calm you down for the 10, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe till, uh, you know, if you're lucky to get an experienced technician out there. So mental health, the mental health advocates in Canada have been pushing for this forever, right? And the House of Commons unanimously voted already in favor of establishing a three-digit suicide prevention number in 2020. Those working in the field of suicide prevention say that's a gold standard. Uh, now established south of the border makes it clear that Canada has some catching up to do. Uh, Cheryl Boswell, she's the uh, executive director of Youth Mental Health Canada. Canada can't act fast enough. But here's the thing. Okay, so here's the thing. The thing is that everybody agrees that we need to do it. Everybody voted in favor to do it. But the project is still under evaluation. I'm not sure why, because we're able to fast track things for COVID and such. We're able to fast track all kinds of things in an emergency situation. We're living in an emergency situation, my friends. You need to let your MPPs know that and your MPs know that. This is a crisis, a real honest-to-goodness crisis. People are dying every day, young people. I deal with patients constantly on a daily basis, young, young people under 25 who are thinking of suicide, who have a plan for suicide, and don't know who to call, don't have a safe person to call. So having a simple number, like a, you know, a lot of them call kids' help phone, for that matter. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. Um, or they text kid help phone. Uh, because someone there is going to be able to direct them, help them, counsel them, save them, um, right? But for everyone else, if you don't match the, the youth mold, and that's kids' help phone is really more than that, frankly, but this 988 number or whatever number in Canada will in fact save lives. So why can't we move it? It's not, you know, it's not moving fast enough. And I'll tell you why. It's stuck with the, it's a stuck, stuck with the CRTC, Okay. So the Canadian, uh, what is it, Radio Television Communications people, CRTC, they're, they're, they're were the ones that are holding on to this. A healthcare Canada, uh, for example, what do we see here? Um, Health Canada spokesman said, spokesperson said, the Canadian, uh, the CRTC uh, was evaluating how the number could be introduced and the department expected a decision later this year. Seriously, like, why can't they get together, have a conversation, figure this out in a crisis room if need be? Have the mayor involved, have whoever has to be involved, the ministries, whoever has to be involved, push the CRTC to get this done. We're not looking for regulatory approval. Government's already approved it. We're looking how to, how to, how to implement it. The Minister of Health and Addictions, Carolyn Bennett, seen in Ottawa in March of 2020, says the federal government is waiting for the CRTC to complete its evaluation of the suicide hotline project, according to Canadian press or Canada press. Canadian press uh, also said that the CRTC, let me see here, launched consultations on the project in June of last year. 
The period to offer comments was extended until March. Come on, folks. Like, how long does it take to figure this out? Meantime, I'm taking as many calls as I can. And I'm one guy. Can you imagine if, you know, how many others of me are out there and we're overwhelmed? The system is overwhelmed. It would be simple for people to have a number to at least hold it. Often when somebody is suicidal, I'll tell you as a therapist and a crisis worker, when people are in a suicidal mindset, sometimes just talking to them is enough. Often talking to them is enough, right? Validating their feelings, hearing them, feeding back as much positive information as you can, understanding, providing a sense of hope. That's the goal. You provide a sense of hope. Hope is the anti-suicide. Hope is what keeps people going. So someone on the other end of the phone that can provide the hope and an opportunity to see tomorrow and what it might bring, there's no time to figure this out. The time was yesterday, my friends, and we need to figure this out long before tomorrow. It's taking way too long, and it doesn't make sense to me. If, by the way, you know somebody who is suicidal, Talk Suicide Canada, 1-833, write it down, 1-833-456-4566, or you can text them at 45645. It's already too many numbers, right? Kids' help phone, by the way, again, is 1-800-668-6868. When we come back from break, we got more stuff to do. We're going to talk to someone about something called brain painting. Uh, which is uh, really cool, actually. So we're going to talk about that. It's a potential, um, a potential treatment for uh, attention deficit hypertension disorder. Uh, then we come back after break. We've got more stuff to do. We're going to talk with my good friend, Louis March, about uh, what's going on in the Danzing Street, uh, aftermath of Danzing Street, more about guns and gangs and such. And then we're going to talk to your kids about money at an early age, another segment. And then we're going to open the door. We're going to talk about family caregivers and think about what we can do to provide them with support. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Jonah Budd. I'm your host this evening here at 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Jonah Budd, only on 640 Toronto. Hello, folks, and welcome back. God, this time is just marching along. It's We're having so much fun and sharing so much information that it's kind of hard to keep track of the time. It's, it's like a, we're almost done, right? We're almost done the first hour. Seems like I just got started. Anyway, listen, some good news. It's nice to share some good news. There's a student at the University of Southern Florida. He put on a cap covered with all these little tiny sensors. And that records the electrical signals in the brain, right? Then he began to stare at the computer screen. His name is uh, Tyree Lewis. He folded his hands in his lap and silently looked forward. Uh, He sat motionless. A blank canvas on the nearby screen started to fill up with shapes red circles and triangles, green squares, and so on. You're not sure where you are, by the way. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host, and we're talking about brain painting. Like, how cool does it sound just as an idea? USF computer science and engineering professor Marvin Andohar is studying whether college students diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, can use this futuristic technology to improve their attention spans and reduce the need for, prescri- for prescription drugs. Improving their attention at the same time, they're also improving their emotional state. We're fortunate to have him as our guest this evening, Dr. Marvin Andohar. He's Assistant Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of South Florida, who is studying if brain painting can help college students 
diagnosed with ADHD. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. So I don't even want to pretend to understand this uh, other than I got to tell you it's super cool. I'm not sure that's a scientific term. Uh, take, take us through the ABCs like, you know, like you're talking to grade school kids. Yes, for sure. Uh, so actually, you got all of it right uh, when you were describing <laughs> it. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So the field that I work on uh, in the, uh, and that my research lab works on is on brain-computer interfaces. And uh, so we work on technology on how can we compute, uh, uh, control machines with the human brain. Uh, so it could be from wheelchairs to robotic arms to uh, one of my specialties, which is controlling drones. And in this case, actually creating uh, abstract paintings with your brain. Uh, so the idea of, cre uh, of actually tailoring our projects to help those with ADHD came from the community itself. Right, so at different conferences, when I uh, perform demos, uh, let's say I, I will host, uh, I will have like a table and I get people uh, uh, pretty much creating paintings with their brains or controlling uh, drugs with their brains. Um, adults have approached me at the end and have asked me uh, if, how can they buy this technology? Because they have ADHD and they would like to use this type of technology at home so they can improve their attention and retention. And this kept just happening uh, at different locations, uh, adults and every time I gave a presentation and uh, there will be some with ADHD in the, in the crowd and they will approach me at the end of the, my presentation and pretty much talk to me about it indicating that they need more technologies like this because they don't like to use drugs. Uh, they have this, it has a lot of side effects. So the way that brain painting works is uh, pretty much most of it, how you explained that is they get to concentrate while wearing what we call an EEG headset, an EEG cap that erases electrical signal from the brain. We take all those electrical signals and through our program that we created, we translate those signals to concentration or so to see where the person is concentrating. So the person concentrating a square, uh, um, the color red, green, blue, they get to concentrate on those. The, uh, the uh, program will would um, detect that and then start creating the abstract painting based on the concentration of the user. And because it requires so much concentration, yeah. so if I'm trying to paint with my brain and then let's say my phone rings and yeah. I have ADHD and I go pick up the phone, yeah, that that's not a good idea because I'm already distracted. So no. I may have I may have. I may have to start all, all over just because I, I just got distracted trying to brain paint. Okay. So I want to share a couple of things. First of all, ADHD, mm -hmm. that's great. ADHD is one of the most common mental health conditions, according to the yeah. World Health Organization, diagnosed with children, last and out into adulthood. Estimates 5.4 million kids aged 2 to 17 have it in the U.S. At least 60% of children with neural development conditions will experience symptoms of ADHD as adults. Uh, it's a big deal. But I got to tell you something. 25 years ago, I was invited to participate uh, in a program, in a, in a test in Texas. And what the idea was, they were dealing with uh, young kids who were um, um, paraplegic. So couldn't use their arms, couldn't use their legs. And they were wearing this crazy cap, right? With all kinds of electrodes. You probably know about it. Um, and I was there yeah. to try, I was try, I was there to try to, my job was to try to, you know, deal with the kid, interface with the kid, keep them calm, keep them focused. But they were learning how to play mm -hmm. video games with brain, mm -hmm. with brain, yeah. with brain control. And I'm telling you, brother, 
I saw them play ping, you know, ping pong and simple video games, back and forth type video games without touching anything. So I'm yeah. so I'm so what's remarkable is here we are talking about it 25 years later uh, and it looks like it's coming to the forefront. So where does this go from in this really cool looking opportunity and pilot? Like what's the next step to turn this into something that people can use as a real uh, means of therapy? When, when is that available? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now we're working towards um, creating a more feasible uh, application within brain painting so people can start using at home. So for, and also the, the EEG cup that we're using is more research grade, uh, it's more medical uh, clinical grade. So right. they are consumer based uh, EEGs out, out there now that cost $200, $400. So the goal would be to be able to take what we have and scale it down to one of those uh, devices so people can start using it at home. Um, compared to, let's say, what we're using now is a $20,000 uh, medical grade uh, device. That's not feasible for people to use, but can we use devices that cost $200, $400 uh, that's in the market right now uh, so people can start training their attention at home? And also, uh, we're working towards creating a giving the opportunity for people to create these paintings as an NFT, as a non-fungible token. So pretty much they're not NFTs, uh, they get to create abstract paintings, which will be very unique of, of brain generated, uh, created, and also be able to um, create an NFT around it. Wow, that's, uh, that's remarkable. Are there any risks, any risks to using the technology? There's no risk. Um, uh, I would say, depending on the person, uh, there's some fatigue involved. Uh, and, and that's because, again, we're not really, as adults, we're not really used to, let's say, controlling anything with our brain, right? So if we want to walk, we just walk. We don't think about it. Uh, we don't, and I always tell that, I ask in my class, actually, when I teach my classes uh, on brain computer interfaces, I ask my students, uh, how many of them go home and uh, open and close the door with the brains and nobody raised their hands, right? Be uh, it's possible to do it, yeah. but it's, it's not common yet. So we're not used to using our brains that way. So that that's why it, it, it causes fatigue on the person. Uh, so, but it's like an athlete. So you actually get to train as much as you can. And yeah. the more you train, the more you train, the better you become and uh, the less tired you will be. Uh, so that, and, I would say depending on some people are more sensitive, so they may get some headaches in the beginning, but yep. but that's just because of the tightness of the device. And of course, you're just trying to consider for a long period of time. Uh, but again, that's how the, uh, it varies per person. So we only have a, a, a little bit of time uh, left, mm -hmm. unfortunately. I mean, if we could talk about this, I'm sure all night. Uh, but I do, I, I do um, want to ask you, um, not just th this sounds to me like this has a great application, not just for people who have a diagnosis with attention deficit, hyper, you know, hyperactivity or hypertension disorder. It's, it, it's, it's, you can use this just to learn how to concentrate better. It seems like there's applications towards things like, um, you know, dementia and other kind of memory type loss disorders. Um, does that make sense? And is that what the future looks like? Do you think uh, in a more broad strokes? Uh, you're correct. So uh, funny thing that you bring this up because uh, after my this brain, team, brain painting project has been in the news uh, lately, I have been getting emails from parents indicating, well, I have my, my kid has ADHD, can they participate in your studies? But also 
uh, I just got recently an email from someone who said he sur- is a, a stroke survivor and have asked me if we have already oh, started wow. to tailor our projects to help those with stroke. And then I had others with uh, those who said, well, I have, my kid has autism. Uh, is there any possibilities that your work can be tailored to those who are autistic? And then another one for dementia. So uh, it is, there's a big need out there for, for us to be just keep creating technologies and experiences for uh, those with you know, autism, ADHD, dementia. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, so there are definitely a lot of opportunities there uh, to help uh, those in need. Yeah, I think you're right on the, you're on talking about the road to recovery. You're right on the right side of the road to help people. Uh, I think down the road, this is going to be uh, uh, dynamically uh, active and a useful tool uh, for lots of people suffering with lots of things. As soon as we come back from break here, we got so much more stuff to do, lots to talk about. So go do the things you need to do and then settle back in here on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. I'm your host this evening, Yona Bud, and thanks for joining us. If you're tuning back in and to just got off for the break, hope you did what you needed to do. Had some something yummy to eat, maybe something to drink, whatever you need to do to stretch your legs. Get back on the bus here. We'll get back on this Road to Recovery and keep doing the stuff that we do here on 640 Toronto. I want to let you know that uh, lots going on in the city, lots of fun things to do. Just be safe while you're doing them. It's a little bit warm out there. You got to watch yourself, you know, make sure you're drinking tons and tons of water. It's a big deal, right? Um, Canada's largest and busiest transit hub in downtown Toronto was shut down last week uh, after a fatal shooting that caused uh, an evacuation and left thousands of commuters stranded. Just hours later, a couple of kilometers away, Another shooting inside a popular nightclub sent two people to hospital with gunshot wounds. Police later reported that a male victim had died in the hospital while a female was treated and released. A third shooting incident on that same weekend occurred Sunday evening in a parking lot near Danforth Avenue and Main Street, disrupting traffic, public transit, injuring a male in his 40s. Police have released very few details about the suspects in the shootings, and the incidents have brought heightened safety concerns about gun violence happening in public places around crowds of people. Now, bearing in mind that what we're talking about is downtown Toronto, um, you know, neighborhoods, Danforth and Maine, very active uh, public neighborhoods, lots of, you know, gentrification there, lots of people running around, um, lots going on. Guns ringing out in public places is especially concerning over the summer months when many outdoor group activities take place. Um and the major root causes of violence, such as mental health problems, traumatic experiences, parents, children, poverty, and economic disparity, among other things, just don't get enough attention. John Tory says the incidents are extremely upsetting and un- upsetting and unsettling, adding that he would be advocating for stronger penalties and tougher gun laws. In recent years, several other shootings have taken place in daylight in public places, also often involving relatively young people. Longtime community safety advocate Louis March said something fundamental has changed in how gun crimes are committed. Many criminals used to have a code. The firing of guns in public pu- public spaces full of innocence was a no-go, primarily because it attracted unwanted attention from police, what we would call a heat score. 
The young, I added that. He, he didn't include it. The young ones today have no code, and the brazenness of the shooting seems to inspire them. He added, and the trend is primarily driven by easy access to illegal guns and the willingness for young people to use them. The founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement, Louis March, said, investigating un, investing in underserved communities, establishing adequate gun control measures should be the priority in fighting against gun violence. I have Louis March and Marcel Wilson here with me tonight. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, Yona. Thanks for having me again. A pleasure. A pleasure. I think uh, we're getting Marcel on here sometime soon. Okay, um, thank you, Brad. Me, oh, perfect, buddy. Glad you're there. Uh, guys, you know, I, I, I almost want to sign you up as co-hosts because we keep coming back talking about relatively the same stuff. Uh, but we're talking now, you know, when we talk, when we started talking, I guess almost five years ago when we first met, uh, you know, we were talking about gunfire and gang, gang and gun activity and quote unquote tenderloin neighborhoods of the city, which, you know, we call underserved areas of the city now, um, because it's what it really is. Um, and now we're talking about, you know, local, neighborhoods, you know, quote unquote, you know, middle class, you know, people not living too tough um, day to day from what you see on the outside, lots of retail. Gentlemen, this is just, um, I'm just waiting for it to come to my front door. I don't think you'll have to wait too long, Yona, unfortunately. Um, you know, we've been talking about these trends. We've been talking about temperature rising. We've been talking about the shootings being brazen and that they will become more and more and more brazen and it will continue until, you know, something real is done, until tangibles are, are, are delivered. Um, we have to get out of the analysis paralysis, talking about what we think is wrong. People are angry. Let's enforce more laws. When has that ever worked? You know, what we've, I'm frustrated because now we've gotten to the point where we brought these answers to the table. Lou and I met with the prime minister a few weeks ago. We've sat down with public safety ministers. We, we, we've sat down with mayors, and we've laid out. They've asked, what's your solutions? We've laid it out, A to Z. This is what we is working for us, and, yet, and we're still here. Louis, uh, Marcel Wilson, uh, founder and uh, advocate, the One by One Movement. Louis March, um, Louis, like... Uh, we're going to get when we come. We're going to keep you guys on for a couple of segments. We're going to get to the, I guess, almost anniversary of the of the Danzel shootings. But uh, I want to talk get to, to to talk about that too because it's ten years ago. Uh, but you know the the um, you know we talk about changing and seeds and roots and so on. You know what, um, Louis, in in your opinion, and we'll get to Marcel as well. In your opinion, um, what's it, what's needed here? To take the guns out of the, it's like I, I'm now convinced after talking to you know myself forever and others that I know and, and you as well, um, uh, other advocates and, and people that are out there doing you know working hard um, to try to make a difference. You know, it's not it's not the gangbangers, it's not the bikers, it's not the it's not the the people you would think should be if you watch TV and the movies uh, should be out there, you know, spraying bullets all over the place. And you know, they're not targeted shootings like you see in Hamilton when they're trying to get rid of a you know a hit on a, on a mobster. These are these are just kids with with weapons. How do we get the weapons out of their hands, and what do we replace those weapons with, Louis? I think it's important to recognize that. Uh the gun violence culture is changing in front of us as we speak today. The participants, the access to guns, the willingness 
to use those guns. You know, Marcel spoke about the temperature rising, the willingness to use violence, and the escalating levels of violence. Yeah. The safe zones have been breached. They don't care about the location anymore. As long as the target is somewhere, uh, they're going to take shots. And it's the boldness, the brazenness. We've been speaking about this for years, but our response yeah. uh, from a political level has not been what it's supposed to be. They're still what? using old-school mentality. More boots on the ground, more police. It's not working. What, what what do they what do they say to you when you guys are in front of them? You know, um, having a you know, you know, in front of them, laying out options and choices and you know opportunities for change, and you you got to look them in the eyes and go, you know, guys, like what you're doing isn't working. Like how's it working for you so far, kind of thing. And you know, where's the where are the pilot projects? We're going to get to that in a little while too. I want to talk to Marcel about when he's got on the go. But where are the pilot projects and stuff that we can track and talk about in the news so that people can sleep at night thinking that we're actually making a difference instead of just cleaning up the mess with a broom and a, and a mop and gluing people, you know, families together with, with gum and faith, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's, you know, what do they look, what do they, how they stare you in the eyes and say, yeah, no, we're going to continue to do this. Where, where's the pushback guys? Well, when, when we met, sorry, Marcel, when we met uh, with the mayor and the minister of public safety, my opening statement was there's nothing we're going to say here at this table. That is new, has not been said before, and you do not know about. But we're going to continue saying it until you start factoring what we're saying in your decision-making. They will listen to us, but they will go out and do something totally different and then celebrate what they're doing. And that is concerning. You know, Marcel speaks about his frustration. I talk about anger and rage because... We've had 24 shootings homicide so far this year. Yeah. No, no, 25. How many of those could have been prevented if we were doing what we're supposed to do? We cannot be putting band-aids on band-aids and then hoping and praying for the best. It, it's not Marce working. Marcel, when you were sitting in front of the Prime Minister, you, guy, uh, you and Louis were sitting in front of the Prime Minister. I assume you actually got to see him. Um, do you get the sense that you're just being paid lip service and it's kind of a, we talked about this before, just a photo op? Or, and if so, you know, I guess you got to continue doing it to show up until they finally hear you. But at what point do you stand up and go, guys, enough is enough? Like, you got to listen and pay attention here. I mean, how much more vocal can you get? Well, that's what I mean. That's the thing. You know, I, I do these things because I'm hopeful, you know, that one day, you know, they're, they're, they're going to listen. And I mean, what we're asking for is not crazy. What we're saying is let's do things that we haven't tried before. We can't keep doing the same things over and over and over. That's the definition of crazy. Right. And, you know, when when is something tangible going to happen? And then, you know, you get a lot of, oh, we agree or, you know, but, but now I'm starting to understand the political game. I'm starting to understand that people are chained or tied to, their political parties. So even if they understand what you're saying and they know it as fact, because it may go against um, their their political beliefs or structure, they're going to continue to let our kids die. You know, so it, it's unfortunate that this, this has become an industry. And then I see it with, with agencies, groups, people on the street, you know, that, that claim they're out there to help. 
but people are getting fat off this, you know, and, and, and it's disgusting, but we will never stop. We'll keep enforcing our brand. And what, what I, what I say to these politicians when I'm in front of them is we're going to continue to do what we do in our way and keep bringing data, keep bringing proof to them that the, the high risk demographic, the, the, the ones that, you know, need the most help are reaching out to us and we're going to embarrass you with their voices. We're going to keep bringing their voices forward. We're going to keep pushing them forward to let, to let the world know that some of these guys are, these children are actually asking for help and we don't have the resources to give them the proper help. Well, we, uh, it's, um, I know when we come back, we're going to talk about some uh, opportunities. I know, Marcel, you and I chatted offline about them a few days ago. Hopefully you can share that a touch. Uh, but when you come back from break here, we're going to uh, look at uh, the Danzing shooting a decade later or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know uh, Louis was firsthand there. I, I think you were as well, Marcel. So uh, let, let's look at that and kind of uh, revisit where that got us to today, how we went from there to now. But when we come back from break, we're going to do some more of this stuff. I'm talking to Louis March, uh, founder of Zero Gun violence movement uh, and uh, marcel wilson one by one both uh, i consider brothers and uh, uh, family to me and um, yeah man we're just keep talking about this till we make a difference go uh, do what you got to do we'll be back in just a couple of minutes we're on the road to recovery i'm yona bud your host here at 640 toronto addiction is a serious issue and we take it seriously this is road to recovery with yona bud on 640 toronto Hello there. Welcome back. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, your host. If you're just tuning in, thank you for joining us. If you're continuing to stay with us, thanks for staying with us. Uh, if you want to reach me for any reason, you can uh, the road or the by email road to recovery at 640toronto.com or 8, uh, 877-777-5808 is a private toll-free number. You can get to me that way. Uh, in the laneway between townhomes where the barbecue was held that night, gunfire erupted soon after 10 p.m. It sent people scrambling in every direction and emergency crews rushing to the scene. In the chaos, terrified residents tried to keep the wounded, like Charles, alive. A mother and her 20-month, 22-month-old son, whose head had been grazed by a bullet, were rushed to a local hospital in a police cruiser. A crisscross of yellow and black police tape went up. Police officers would flood that and other neighborhoods in the following weeks. The media broadcast constantly from a neighborhood most Torontonians had never seen or visited. Politicians made overtures about providing more resources. Four young men, not from the neighborhood, would be charged in connection to the shooting and later acts of retaliation. Three remain in prison. One is on full parole. To Louis March, the magnitude of the shooting made it seem as though Toronto gun violence was going to another level. It was scary, he said. It was the Eaton Centre shooting and the dancing that led to the creation of Zero Gun Violence Movement, with Louis March founded. Those shootings were a wake-up call, March said, pointing to other public shootings in 10 years since. At a toddler's birthday party, at a playground, in malls, on busy downtown streets, in broad daylight, at a high school. And with each shooting, the response felt... Less shocking, he said. Has it become normalized? Acceptable? March pointed to the 10-year safe, uh, safe TO plan developed by city staff that speaks to collaboration, investing in communities, and sustainably, sustainably funded programming as the right kind of root cause approach. Council approved spending its own money on that plan as part of the 2022 budget. 
a significant 12 million in one year. Louis March and Marcel Wilson are joining me. Louis March, one by uh, zero gun violence movement. Marcel Wilson, one by one. Louis, ten years ago, um, you were devastated, shocked, and like it, you know, you were in awe of, in a negative way, of where we where he had come. Here we are, brother, a decade older, a decade later, maybe a few pounds heavier, both of us. Um, <laughs> you, you know, uh, not much has changed, right? Not much has changed. Jack- uh, it's actually getting were, it's actually getting worse. Well, it's becoming normalized. When we see these shock shootings, uh, we're not acting the way we used to as a surprise. Uh, it's become normalized. You know, like we had a, a shooting at, in Tandridge. You know, Marcel can speak to that at a birthday party yeah. with a celebrating a one year old's birthday. Right? It's not a surprise anymore to us. The shock treatment is. The response is no longer there. And it's that changing gun culture, the brazenness, the boldness, the age of the kids using the guns, carrying guns. We have to have a better plan than what we have. Uh, And that's what's concerning. Uh, The name of this program is Road to Recovery. The recovery of the people at that barbecue. They still have scars from what took place. Yeah. Right, the shootings. There's so many other people that are impacted, families yeah. impacted, and how do they recover from this? And it, it it feeds into the cycle of violence, and this is why we have to get better with our response. Marcel, um, you know, Louis refers to, and you guys both talk about this safetyo ten-year plan. Cities invested, everyone's invested. Um, more crap the same way, or you think this is? Uh, we're going to actually, I mean, here we are a decade later. We're having the same, you know, a conversation. I didn't know you guys then, but I'm sure we'd be having the same conversation that we're having today, shaking our heads, um, you know, and, you know, tomorrow when I go, you know, to uh, go play golf and talk to the guys I hang out with on a Sunday afternoon, I can promise you no one is going to talk about the gun violence from the weekend. But I remember years ago that, you know, that discussion, even amongst people that weren't, quote unquote, directly involved, when it was on the news, it was, oh, how devastating it is. And as Louis says, we're becoming normalized to it. You're in the trenches. I mean, literally in the trenches with one by one movement. Are the communities becoming like like when we say normalized on the outside? that then becomes normalized on the inside, meaning that for kids to do this, for 15-year-olds to go and just spray a bunch of bullets in a playground or a public school or you know, some, a bunch of punks go down and blow people away you know, after an after-hours club or something, like, it, it's just like it's not a big deal anymore. That's right. So, so where's, the, where's, the, where's the badge value that these young punks, these young wannabe gangsters, uh, where's their badge value? Where, where's the cred they're getting from this like they might have back in your day? Well, um, I, I, as you said, Jonah, we're, we're right in the thick of it. And first, I want to start off by, you know, rest in peace, Cheyenne Charles and, and Joshua Yassi, yes. uh, the two who died that day. Um, you know, I think about when I was young, and it was, you know, an anomaly to hear a gunshot go off in my communities. And I lived, I was born and raised in marginalized communities in, in Toronto housing and a gunshot would go off. And I mean, as a little kid, you know, we're ducking for the cars, we're jumping under, you know, anything for cover where I'm in the same situations now, actually just not long ago, um, where we were in a situation and, you know, shots are fired. No one moved. 
No one budged. People pulled out their phones. You know, it was almost a a, a cool thing. You know, and then we're, we're talking about something like that ha- the tragedy that happened in Danzig. We talk about 10-year plans. You know, you know that there still are retali- retaliatory shootings that stem from shootings that batched that particular shooting that happened all those years ago. No. There's still bloodshed continuing today because of that particular incident. And the more shootings we have, the more deaths we have, the toughest thing that we battle as one by one movement are the revenge killings. You know, how do you tell a young man who lost his cousin, his brother, his best friend to put down the gun, to stop yeah. the violence? How? Yeah. And that's our, that's our biggest challenge. And I mean, we're sick of talking about it. You know, we get calls every day from penitentiaries. I'm, I'm holding a, a stack of letters right now from high profile gang members that want a way out and how they cope. And now we're also seeing, we're dealing with, you know, a, another beast that's rarely spoken about. And that's the, the, the drug component to this, the mental health component, where these, these young guys are using drugs that we never used back in the day. Yeah, to numb those feelings, to make the shootings easier. Yeah, yeah you, know, you, so, take a, you, you, t- you take a big hit of uh, crack or meth or something, get all wired up, and you don't even feel yourself pulling the trigger. Um, you know, it, it, I, I want to, if you guys don't mind, I want to lean this way a little bit, Mar- uh, um, uh, Marcel, the way you, uh, because you and I talked about this, I found it just quite, for me, quite hopeful, quite uplifting. Uh, maybe we can uh, spend a few minutes and, and leave people with some positive thinking. Let, let's talk about, you played some, 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 um, voicemail messages for me, uh, from gangsters. Uh, when I talk about gangsters, I don't mean it in a derogatory way, but gangsters, that's their, you know, guys that are actively involved in gang life at, from the inside who are now looking to you. I heard, I heard the tape message. I heard the, the recordings, a tape message. You can see how old I am. Yeah, I heard the recordings. Um, these are, you know, f- viable, you know, current gang members serving time for murder and things like that, who I heard reach out to you to say, we want, you know, I'm getting out in a couple of years. I want to come and work with one by one, you know, and, and, and I, I want to be active with one by one. Get a hold of me. I want to work with one by one. I mean, so, it, and I also understand that you've connected uh, and again, most people don't even know about this, but you've been connecting um, active gang members inside with some of the kids on the outside so that the guys from the inside are telling them, put it down. It's not a cool thing to do. This doesn't make you a gangster. It just makes you, you know, whatever. Um, and and you're, you're getting results from that, correct? Let's talk about, yeah. let's talk about, let's finish this on a positive note if we can. Absolutely. You know, the program is called Who I Was, Who I Am. And we use our you know, our respect and our street cred and, you know, from back in the day to reach out to guys who, you know, I, I knew once upon a time. And, you know, when you, when you actually get the chance to sit down and talk to these guys, and unfortunately a lot of time it's in hindsight where they, yeah. they understand what they've done. And, and this is now, you know, they've been doing some time. They've had time to think. They've had time to sober up. You know, yeah. they, they've had time to understand the impact that it's had on their families. But I'd love to... Um, play for your listeners uh, just a quick 43 second insert of a young yeah. man uh, of ours. That's about what we have. Go ahead. You know, they call me, they call me AK. I'm serving um, six years six year sentence for discharge fire with intent, aggravated assault, possession of fire. I've been arrested Project Patton. And you know, I'm just I'm trying to work with one by one. 
because I'm trying to, not only am I just trying to change my life for the better, but I'm trying to help the next generation not make the same mistakes I did. And yeah, basically that's a long story short, right? And um, shout out, shout out for all the youngins, one by one, big ups to you guys, and yeah, that's all. So hopefully we can, wow. we can get to more of these guys. Well, you know what, guys? I got to tell you, that's uh, Marcel, and I'm sure Louis is uh, just uh, beaming with the pride in in how this program, who I was, who I am, uh, is going to impact. Because I think that's the difference from the inside out. But we still need the support of the politicians and those that fund all these programs from the outside in. I'm talking to my my two close friends, my brothers, Louis March, founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement, and Marcel Wilson founder and advocate with the one by one movement. Thank you both and uh, keep fighting the fight. And as you know, you always have a platform here with me and uh, we'll do whatever we can to get that message out. Keep that message out and uh, keep fighting the good fight, right? So um, blessings and peace to both of you. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk and flip the switch here a little bit. We're going to talk about how to talk to your kids about money at an early age. My grandson wanted to know why we couldn't get the $350 Lego, why the $100 Lego was more up my alley. But Zadie, you got lots of money, he said. So we had that chat. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to have that conversation with the little ones in your life. Road to Recovery, Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about stuff. And the stuff we're talking about right now is uh, how to talk to your kids about money. You know, my grand, like I said on the, uh, on the extra here from the last segment, my grandson wants to know why we can't get the big expensive stuff all the time. And I got to explain to him that, you know, Zadie, that's what he calls me. It's Yiddish for grandfather. He says, you know, I said, Zadie works hard and I can only spend so much on so many things. He said, Oh, Zadie, you got lots of money. That's what he says. So we had to kind of sit down and talk about what lots of money really meant and that I didn't have it. But anyway, money is still considered by many to be a taboo topic or private matter which is why many people avoid sparking up conversations about their personal finances with friends, colleagues, and even family. And, you know, that's true, too. And I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. It's pretty private. You know, someone once asked me at a party, so uh, how much do you make running, uh, you're running the farm and doing the kind of work you do? And I said, that's a pretty personal question. I don't know, enough to feed my family. He says, no, no, really, like, you, you must make millions. And I looked at him, I said, do I look like a guy that's making millions? Anyway, he just walked away. But experts say that people should start talking to their kids about money from a very early age. Helps them develop a healthy relationship with their own finances one day. It's a value thing, right? So I'm trying to explain to my grandson that, you know, if, if we, if we save our, if you save your money, if you save the money that I give you for your teeth, when your teeth fall out, and the money that I give you for Hanukkah and for your birthday and for getting, a, you know, I give my, my grandchildren uh, money for good marks at school. Um, I try to give them money for anything that they, you know, as a reward so they can spend it on the things that, that are important to them. Um, but, you know, it's important that they understand that it's not an endless pit and that $5 is $5. And it doesn't seem like a lot in today's world, but if you put 10 of them together, it's $50. Now you can buy something. And if you really save your money and put keep 20 of them, you get $100. It's really simple. Handling money is a life skill, just like cooking is a life skill. 
So parents shouldn't rely on the education system to teach their kids about financing because it's not going to happen. They're not going to look at learn about finances, especially since they'll, you know, they never cover that topic, right? It's just instead they're learning, start, you know, the learning should start at home. Whatever children discover outside the house can be considered, you know, a supplemental a, a level of education. But you know what? If you're planning a, a family trip, for example, great opportunity, great opportunity to talk to your kids about the value. Well, we could go here and, it, you know, if we went here for five days, it costs this much. But if we went here for seven days, it costs this much. But if we went to this place for seven days and we didn't do all of this, but we did this instead, we could get it for the same money as if we traveled for five days instead of seven days. Like, there's a, a real time. You know, kids that are playing hockey or playing different sports where they're, you know, when they're younger and, you know, they're going through hockey equipment every year or two or baseball equipment every year or two and soccer gear every year or two or ballet clothes every year or two. I mean, my granddaughter goes through dance, uh, dance clothing, you know, every six, seven months because she's growing. And God bless her. She should keep growing. That's the plan. But you got to fund it. and They got to understand that, you know, you, you got to treat your stuff well because it's worth money. You know, I remember I bought my grandson something. I don't remember what it was. And I came home one day and it was on the floor when they were staying with us. And it was just on the floor and, and, and he sort of kicked it out of the way. And I said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a $75 whatever. He said, really? I said, yeah. If I had $75 and I gave it to you, would you kick it around the floor like that? He said, no, no, no. I'd put it in my pocket or put it away, Zadie. I promise. Well, then treat your stuff the same way. You got to teach them, right? Parents shouldn't hold back talking about money. And if, especially if they're in their own sort of difficult situation, better to be honest with your kids about why they can't go to the summer camp thing or why they can't take that or buy that or do that this time. But we'll save our money and you can do it next time. Or you know what? Maybe you can help me do some stuff around the house that I can pay you to do. And then together we can, you pay half. I mean, I was, I was big with my kids on I'll pay half, you pay half, right? Um, and they did stuff around the house or they got, you know, little jobs or whatever they could do. But if, even if you have a handle, for example, on the, if you don't even understand the stock market, for example, and, you know, like teenagers now are talking about, you know, digital currency and, uh, all these different coins that you buy and with the, you know, the, you know, you buy it today for this and it's going to be worth that. And, it's, you know, it, it seems like the new panacea of how to get rich. Trust me, if it was a panacea, how to get rich, everybody would be doing it. But, you know, so you talk about digital currency and now that's, different than real currency. You know, by the way, I got more 17-year-olds that I talk to that know more about, um, you know, Bitcoin and, and other forms of cyber um, um, cyber money, uh, digital currency and such, that, you know, they know more about it than most adults. So sometimes talking to your kids about strategies, I have a you know, 18-year-old patient that works, that I work with that is a genius when it comes to stock markets and investing. He makes tons of money uh, while he's going to school. Um, and, you know, he's teaching his family how to do it. So just opening the discussion, Bruce Celery, he's the CEO of Credit Canada Debt Solutions here in Toronto. He says parents are also stay tight, say also stay tight lipped because they want to shield their kids from constraints about that they feel about money, especially as finances can get, continue to get tight. He argues, though, there's value in having those conversations with your kids in a transparent and age-appropriate way. And by the way, there are things called 
you know, tax camp for kids and stock market camp for kids, uh, teaching your kid about income ta- income tax. There's, uh, you know, you teach them how to, there's all kinds of sites that you can go to, family ed- education st- sites. I'm looking at one right now called familyeducation.com, uh, teach your kid about income tax. It's American-based, but, I mean, there's Canadian versions as well. There's, you know, there's investment camp. Kids, you know, kids are going to school to city run or public run uh, summer camps where, you know, at a certain age, 14, 15, they're teaching them about investing and, and about what stock market looks like and what, you know, what returns on investment look like and things like that. Kids will get it if you teach it to them. But if you pretend that, it, that money just grows on trees and just mom and dad take care of it because we're the ones that always have it, they're never going to learn how to be responsible. So you have to teach them how to be responsible with the money you give them now so they're responsible with the money that they earn later. A great conversation to have takes you away from all the ugly stuff you could be talking about. Instead, um, yeah, man, talk to your kids about money. It's the real deal. Take them to the bank. The bankers have all kinds of packages for little kids that want to open bank accounts. It's really cool. They get to come home with things, and it's fun. When we come back, we're going to talk about caregivers, family caregivers, and how they really count and the difference how about how we need to look at them and take care of them? We'll be right back. Yona Bud here, Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Yes, here with the last segment of the show. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? It's about uh, almost uh, 10 to the, uh, 11 here. If you don't know where they are, you should probably find them. It's pretty hot out there. Your pets should be indoors now, too, I would think. And, uh, you know, anyone that shouldn't be roaming around the streets, you should know where they are. And if you're concerned, call 911 and get the help of those folks to uh, to find out if everyone is well. Uh, there were times, you know, where, when my mom, you know, my mom passed away on March 11th. Um, seems like just yesterday, my father was her caregiver uh, both my mom and my dad are in, my mom was in her mid nineties. My father's in his mid nineties, soon to have another birthday. Thank God. And, um, he, uh, he was the main caregiver. And then, and then when my mom got real sick, uh, towards the end and we knew that, uh, time was, uh, limited, uh, my wife became the primary caregiver and, um, it, it really changed the dynamic of her days um and me sitting back and watching this uh you know she took some time off work unpaid time off work um and um was there constantly to provide support from my father who just couldn't take care of my mother at that point completely by himself you know there was all kinds of and then we had and we had you know we eventually brought in uh, other caregivers um you know that some that were paid for some that were provided by the province through programs that they have uh but you know the PTSD, the, the trauma and stress that goes with a relative taking after or looking after someone as their primary caregiver is something we don't talk about. Uh, here's an article here. Um, th- there were times I came home in tears because I feel like I have PTSD from last spring. Sounds like the sediments of someone who just returned from some faraway war zone. And in a way, they are. The speaker is not a soldier. The war is not in some distant part of the world. Rather, the words were spoken by a relative of someone in long-term care in Ontario, a family member who, like many others, was effectively banned 
from visiting a loved one during their early months of pandemic, even though they were considered the primary caregiver. Charlene Chu, she's assistant professor at the University of Toronto and Vivian uh, Stamatopoulos, assistant professor at Ontario Tech University, together with uh, Amanda Yee of the U of T, published two studies examining these experiences. They found that family caregivers suffered significant trauma in their often futile efforts to provide care for their loved ones. The studies are among the first to detail the effects of visitor restrictions on family members, and they provide further evidence on the urgent need for reform in Ontario's long-term care sector. So if you are a person's primary caregiver and they, you know, and they you rely on you to come every day and then things change and now you're in lockdown and because of lockdown, you can't get to see the people that you're providing primary care for becomes a real problem, right? Becomes a real problem for the, for the person you're visiting, the patient or the, the resident in the care facility, right? They're used to people coming that are familiar. They're used to routine. My mother had a routine. She was her routine. You know, if the, if the same, uh, she used to call them girls. If the same girls didn't show up, you know, when they were supposed to, and you know, sometimes they went on holidays. Sometimes somebody got sick. Sometimes they changed. And these are these are um, lovely, caring, amazing uh, professionals. Uh, PSW is professionals working for CCAC, uh, which is a, a government provided care. A program for those that are in need. Um, and, you know, mixed with the ones that we, you know, my family and I together paid for, uh, and as a group, uh, paid for to, uh, to, you know, to support uh, the extra time my mother needed care. But if someone showed up late or it was a different person, she was way off. Like, you could see the difference even, you know, back, you know, even a year or two ago. Uh, when she was still very lucid and still very active and not active, but still very alert. Uh, she hadn't been active in years, still very alert. Um, she knew the difference and it, w- it would mess with her day. You know, it would mess with her morning. You know, I'd call in the mid afternoon and say, Ma, how you doing? I mean, for during the pandemic, her and I would do video chats almost every day. Uh, with the help of the caregivers that could turn on the, the device. It was just a, a tablet that I had installed there for her. And uh, we would talk pretty much every day and I could tell by her look. You know, kind of morning she would have. And I said, Mom, what, you know, what's going on? She's, ah, you know, the other one didn't show up and this one showed up and she doesn't know how I like my this and like my that. So taking away the normalcy of family visitors to those in care facilities is traumatic. Traumatic for those trying to provide the care. I remember my, during the pandemic, my dad, I believe it was my dad was in hospital for something or, um, or I'm sorry, my mom was in hospital for something. And my dad couldn't go visit her. And it had been the first time they'd been married almost 75 years. It, it, they, it, it was the first time ever where either one of them was in a hospital and the other one wasn't able to visit. My father had a harder time with it than my mother. She just wanted to get home. We eventually took her out of the facility, out of the hospital, because they weren't doing anything for her. She was waiting days for someone to deal with the things she needed to deal with. We eventually just brought her home where my father could see her. We could all see her. We brought, you know, their palliative care people came and, and helped out. We had doctors, her, her, her physician at the time, family physician at the time, would make house visits for, for seniors. I mean, remarkable man. Um, one of the few that still do that stuff. So, but in hospital, she wasn't doing well. She was aging daily by the minute. Uh, her dementia was becoming more pronounced daily by the minute because the normalcy of having my dad there at a minimum um, 
you know, made it difficult for everybody. So long-term care facilities were, of course, under a moral and legal obligation to introduce visitor restrictions when the pandemic began, the story goes on to say, particularly because infectious respiratory diseases always present a lethal threat to their residents and so on. But the visitor restrictions clearly didn't have the desired effect as Canada experienced a higher proportion of LTC deaths than any other country in organization in the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a pretty big deal. And while strict health measures were necessary, the lockdowns might well have contributed to the death toll <clears throat> since the social isolation um, increases anxiety. Anyway, further to what I was talking about, the family caregivers are just not any kind of visitor, right? They, uh, they make them, if, if we make this mistake again, we're going to continue to lose people. Family caregivers are essentially that. They are an important part of the re- recovery for those that are in need. And to take that away is the same as taking away their medicine. And, of course, we would never do that. Next week, we've got a whole bunch more stuff to do. We don't know what it is yet, but by Wednesday, I'll have it all figured out. And uh, we'll be back to share with you next Saturday night here on the Road to Recovery. Once again, I'm Yona Bud, your host here at 640 Toronto.